All right, let's sing This Is The Day, okay? This is the day. everyone. Welcome to Sunday School on Groundbreaking Sunday. I didn't know there was such a thing, but it must be a national holiday now that we're doing it. (laughs) Okay, Um, again, what we're doing, did I bring the book up here? Yeah. We are nearing the end of this book called Quick Answers to Social Issues. we are in the conclusion, concluding chapter we had, or section. We had an introductory cha- section. Then we covered uh, life issues and equality issues, marriage, gender, and sexual issues, environmental issues. And now we're concluding. So this is chapter four of six chapters in the conclusion. And I'll be honest with you, when I first, when I was about to start this, it's like, well, We've been spending so long on this, and is it really worth covering these things? And I think it is. It kind of summarizes, it kind of, a lot of what we'll cover, we've already discussed along the way, but it it brings a reminder, helps reinforce it. So I hope you find it helpful. Um, So the question today in this chapter is why the visceral reaction to biblical Christianity And the second question is, how do we respond to it? Um, How many of you use that term visceral very often? Okay, there you go. Uh, Our our friend Daryl there, he uses it a lot. But anyway, I don't. I don't use it very often. And uh, so I actually went to Webster's Dictionary to say, okay, what's a visceral? I can't even say it. Visceral. uh, What's it mean? And many of you probably have some idea, but hopefully this will help. Since we're asking the question, we should understand the the definition of the words we're using. Um, It basically means felt in or as if in the viscera. Okay, so so in other words, you could say uh, visceral conviction, a deep conviction. But what is viscera? Uh, The viscera is plural, a viscous. Okay? So viscera is plural of viscous. And what is viscous? It is an internal organ of the body, especially one such as a heart or liver or intestine located in in the the way the dictionary says, in the great cavity of the trunk proper. So, okay. So, so, So when we're talking about a visceral reaction, we're talking about something that is a conviction or... Basically, too, not intellectual or instinctive. And when you think about it, a lot of times when you see the reactions to Christianity, it is that. It is instinctive. It's not rational. There's not 
much reason that goes into it, <clears throat> but it's there. It's very real. Okay, so um, the, the author of the book opens it of this chapter saying, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world, and hostility toward Christians in the West seems to be growing exponentially. And why is that? So in short, no, uh, your Roman numeral one there, the short answer to the first question as to why this reaction to biblical Christianity is that darkness hates light. Darkness hates light. And, and light has been a topic that's been coming up a little bit lately. Um, so let's turn, if we would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I think we just read this last week, actually. It was not part of the lesson, but I incorporated it as part of the lesson, and we're going to bring it up again because it, it applies. So, again, what I, what I want to focus on is verses 19 and 20, but we're going to start. We kind of can't, can't not start back at verse 16. The good news, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. <clears throat> Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness, rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But again, on the good side, on the good side is verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Kind of reminds me of the book done here that Pastor Matt has made available and others have bought and made available for us to share. That points out in the gospel that, that God has done it. God has made a way for us to, to uh, get to heaven. He's made that possible. It's not something we've done. So anyways, that's, that's uh, kind of the side topic. Okay, let's... I don't have this in your list. Um, actually, you don't have a list there. I have John 3. But jot down, if you would, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. And let's, let's turn there as well. First, uh, the epistle of 1 John, which is just before Jude, which is just before Revelation which is just before 3 John and 2 John. So 1 John 3. Again, the, the, the um, darkness hates the light. As we saw there in John 3, the condemnation is the light. Jesus Christ is the light. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, so they refuse him. So 1 John 3, let's start back at verse um, 10. Again, um, the punchline is verse 13, but we're going to start at 10. It says, In this the children, of, uh, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Okay, we should basically expect that the world would hate you. There are verses, I can't think of them off the top of my head, that do say that, you know, if we obey God, if we walk in his ways, that we will have favor with God and men. But there's also a sense that we have an enemy. And we're going to get into this a little bit more, but we have an enemy, there's a battle here. But we shouldn't marvel that the world hates us. Okay, good. We'll look at that way. We be in favor with God and godly men. The ungodly are against us. Okay, so that's the short answer to the first question. Darkness hates light. However, this isn't a new thing. Letter A, the battle that has raged, the battle, that's your blank there, the battle that has raged throughout history and does so yet today is a war between the only two foundational worldviews. And those worldviews um, started in Genesis chapter 3, uh, but before we get there, let's fill out the, the rest of this here. One of those worldviews, number one there, one is built on the light, the light of the truth of God's word. Uh, Psalm 119 says that his word is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. So it is the, the truth of God's word is light. The other, number two, the other is mired in the darkness of man's ideas and the enemy's lies. Mired in the darkness of man's ideas and the enemy's lies. So it is the same battle of God's word versus man's word as old as Genesis 3. Number, number three there, it, it's a continuation of the battle that began in Genesis 3. So let's go there. Go back to the, the, the foundational um, book of the Bible, Genesis, that says how everything began, how the creation began, how sin began, and uh, history was set in, in, in motion back in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 1, Okay, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So she corrected him right there. So that was good. <laughs> uh, he, didn't, he did not say, You shall not eat every tree of the garden. He said, you, you, We can eat. Uh, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, 
nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we've talked about that before. There's not sin yet in the world. So she wasn't lying or, or whatever when she said, nor shall you touch it. That somehow was her understanding, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lie, let's say. Verse 4. So, so anyways, right away there's a battle here. Did God really say this? Well, no, he didn't say that, but he said this, and okay, so there's a battle right away. Then, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he's saying, no, God's word isn't true, right? Verse 5, and then he comes up with, with he, puts God, he puts God's mind into this, okay? He doesn't have authority to do that, but for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. By the way, I'm sorry. I just thought of that. It's very nice to walk in the cool of the day at this time of year, isn't it? In the morning, it's cool. But anyways, so of course it was perfect then all the time, no matter evening, morning, whatever. Okay, so so they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So basically that was is when, in the course of human history, man began to seek darkness to hide from the light of God and God's word. It doesn't talk about darkness. It doesn't explicitly use darkness there. But the whole concept of hiding, kind of there's an implication of darkness. So if you, if you want to somehow cover yourself up, or you know, he had said they hid in the trees. So... So, and consider the woman's perspective. Even before she actually disobeyed and took the fruit, what did, what did it say there in verse 6? She saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. So the, she lost focus of was, what was of an infinite value, the truth of God's word, and she started looking at, at ways that it might be more appealing to her somehow. And that led her to disobedience and then to Adam's sin. So really, what's going on there in the first few verses of chapter 3 of Genesis is a higher level of spiritual warfare. Um, so I have there in your notes Ephesians chapter 6. So let's turn to there um, to see a little bit more about the spiritual warfare that, that began then in Genesis chapter 3, and continues to this day. Uh, it, it feels as if it's continuing with more force than maybe we've seen in our lifetimes, however long or short our lifetimes are. Um, I think pretty much all of us in this room might be able to agree with that. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6. And of course, there's one who's at the at the at the head of, of this warfare, from, from well, there's, there's our God, the Father, the, the Creator God, and there's Satan. Okay, so let's look at this, Ephesians 6, 
starting in verse 10. Um, yeah, I have 12 through 18, but we'll start back at 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or resist in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, standing is important here. (laughs) Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with what? With truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints." So look, it says in verse 16 there, where it says to above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. What is the object of the faith in that passage? I I think it's the truth that's mentioned in verse 14. That we we gird our waist with, with truth and have faith in that truth, have faith in God's word. And if we get all the way to the end of this lesson today, we'll kind of close the loop on that. But we know again that from John 17, 17, that God's word is truth. Jesus in his prayer, his high priestly prayer said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So there is a warfare in in, in the heavenlies, in heavenly places, the wiles of the devil and his demons against God and his righteousness and the, the, the heavenly angels, there's a, a warfare that we don't see. Sometimes we sense it to some degree, to varying degrees, but it's not something we see with our eyes. Um, let's see here. Okay. Any questions or comments about what we just covered up to now? Have I lost you on anything, or do I? Are you following me in all this? Yeah, God, God's commandment is to prayer, to pray, and prayer isn't. Again, that was that's. I believe that's verse eighteen. That's one of the weapons is prayer. It's an offensive weapon, if you will. It's not so much, although it also serves as a defensive. I think it works both ways. It's offensive asking God to move things forward in a godly way, but it's also defensive to protect us. Um, so, yeah, prayer is, is important. It's, um, you know, there's the old saying, we, we, we'll do it a lot of times. All I can do is pray. Don't say it that way. We, we need to, it's like praying is a tremendous responsibility, and it's a tremendous, of a tremendous importance and value. Because who are we praying to? The God of the universe, Right? who is sovereign, who's omnipotent, omniscient, he can work all things out, and he does. Good point. Okay. All right, so letter B, uh, 
Okay, it's a continuation of the battle, then number letter B. It's important to realize that as we stand on Scripture, defend the faith, and proclaim the gospel, we're simultaneously attacking the secularist worldview. So at the same time we're standing on Scripture and defending the faith, we're attacking the secularist worldview. Um, and then number one under that, by proclaiming God's word as true, we are declaring their foundation as false. It Remember, uh, let's see, is this the time to do it? I'm going to go ahead and say, I think I have it elsewhere here, but it came to my mind, so I'll just go ahead and... You remember... I think it was in one of the introductory chapters of this book. We talked about the uh, neutrality myth. That, that the opponents, that, that the secularists will try and say, oh, we can kind of come on common ground. Let's, let's not talk about the Bible so much. Let's reason this out. Let's, we can come to a, a neutral ground. But there's no such thing. We've said that before, that to, to be... Uh, ag- how, how is that? If we're not with him, we are against him. Um, if we say that we can compromise on God's word, that's not being neutral at all. Um, there is no such thing as neutrality. Um, it's either one worldview is true or the other one is true, and, and they don't they don't blend. Okay, so if we're if we're saying God's word is true, then we're saying their foundation is false. So number two, underneath that, as their foundation crumbles. And, and uh, it's not like we're, well, maybe. I guess we're taking a sword. We're not necessarily so much taking a machine gun, but we are taking a sword using God's word. But so their foundation crumble. As their foundation crumbles, so does everything about their lives, including their identity. They've established an identity for themselves, basically making them gods of sorts, saying uh, their way is right. But part of, if you remember, part of what they said along the way is that there is no such thing as an absolute truth. It's all kind of individual, personal. So it's like, okay, then how can you know yours is true? If you're saying everyone else's is not really, can't be counted on as true, then how do you know yours is true? So they have that issue they're dealing with. But, but if we say God's word is true and, and their foundation crumbles, Everything about their lives um, crumbles as well. So, number three, we should, uh, we should not be surprised that they zealously defend it as if their lives depended on it. Because in a sense, it does. At least the lives as they're living it. The li- their lives based on their philosophy, based on their truth, if you will. If God's word truly is true, then their lives as they know it would, would cease to be what they want it to be. Okay, num- the number four, as our culture and much of the church, I put that in quotes, he did, the, the author didn't, but I'm, I do. I mean, I got to, I mean, I, I think some of the true church has gone this way as well, which is unfortunate. It's, Reduce their effectiveness, I think, 
But as our culture and much of the church turns from the anchor, the anchor of God's absolute truth, the secular view of truth, which is say as a fluid individual and defined by feelings, dominates. The secular view of truth dominates. If if you t- go away from the anchor of God's absolute truth, and again that goes back Genesis three uh, six. That's again where where Eve she saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. So she took of it. She she separated herself from the truth of God's word and and did what seemed best to her based on kind of her feelings, her individual perspective. And so that's what dominated instead of the truth of God's word. And that is, I don't know, we, we naturally go into sin. If we, don't, if we don't stay on God's word and work and strive to obey him and to keep in, in communion with him, we're going to sin. We're going to slide away from the truth of God's word. So that's true for us as individuals, and it's true for a society as well. Okay, so this, uh, where are we? Yeah, letter A under four. Um, This has resulted in secularists feeling more free to emotionally, the idea without logic or rationality, to emotionally attack Christianity, which they see as a danger to the very definition of their being. It's resulted in them feeling more free to emotionally attack Christianity, which they see as a danger. Does that make sense? Do you you see kind of that happening in our world today and with the unbelievers? There's not, again, we kind of covered this earlier on, Saying the idea of visceral, it doesn't necessarily, it, there's not logic or rationality or intellect involved. It's just from their guts, so to speak. And, and so that, that's part of why we had this whole series of studies. I hope it's helped and I hope you've taken some tools away from it. I hope I have. I don't, uh, so that, so that we can at least say, well, you know what? What about this passage? What about that passage? What, what does God say here? So yeah. All right. Yep. The Holy Spirit needs to, do the work in the heart to help them to see. Uh, you guys, um, I'm, I'm going to share it because it came up to my mind. Um, again, my salvation testimony, before I came to know the Lord, I was sitting with my supervisor at lunch one day. I had been attending his Bible study once a week at lunchtime on, on Wednesdays for probably two months, two and a half months, maybe three months. And he asked me, he said, what did I think about the study? And honestly, I didn't. Obviously, God used it because he worked in my life eventually, but at the time, I didn't feel... It's like they know so much about the Bible. I know nothing. They had different perspectives. It was interesting, but it didn't seem to be impacting. And he just... He, I think he got a little frustrated with me. And he just asked me, he said, have you ever considered just cracking the door open and giving God a chance? And when he asked that question, it's like he's sitting across the table from me. It was a lit room, much more lit than this, in a cafeteria. And it was like I looked over his shoulder, and it was like a dark room with a pinprick of light in the very corner. That's the impression that to this day I have of that moment. And 
Less than a week later, I was a believer. So, but, but that was, it was light. And I, I think about that. That's, that's maybe the moment that the Spirit said, here you go, I'm going to give you some light. And then he worked in my life. And uh, I, I still, then I, then I read the Gospel of John and the rest is history. But anyways, yeah, the Holy Spirit did that. That's why we need to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the, the way we're going to do that is like Ephesians 4, 14, to know God's word, to, to, that we're not tossed to and fro, that we're not, we don't let, allow Satan, which he will do, to take scripture and twist it so that we get the wrong perspective and, and uh, lose it. So, all right, let's see here. How are we doing? Um, let's just go, let's go to letter B. Okay, so the, the, let, I got to admit, number, letter A there, 4A, kind of makes it sound like this is a new thing. Okay, the, the, the secularists have done this and now they're feeling more free to, to attack Christianity. But letter B, this is by no means a new way for sinful, sinful humanity to respond to God's ways and people. Uh, so we're going to start, and we're probably only going to do John 9, and maybe we'll come back to it next week and pick up there. But let's go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9 in the Old Testament. So we're going back in history away, certainly before Christ. Okay, in, in this passage, of course, we're, we're talking about the, the Israelites here uh, between either Jeremiah speaking at times and God is speaking at times. I think in verse 1, which most of the commentaries I looked at say really verse 1 fits better with chapter 9, it's like, or chapter 8, it's concluding, wrapping up chapter 8, but let's read it anyway. So, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. I think that's Jeremiah's lamentation here. <clears throat> and then, then verse 2, continuing Jeremiah's thoughts, he said, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. And why? You know, this is he wouldn't really want to leave them. There's got to be a reason he, wants, he, he feels he needs to leave them or would like to. For they are all adulterers an assembly of treacherous men. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. Wow, that's a condemnation, isn't it? But that, that's, that just struck me. It's like, really, they are not valiant for the truth. We should be. Hopefully, we're preparing ourselves to be, but they aren't. For they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, says the Lord. So that was the Lord speaking there. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. It doesn't, it's not that they are weary doing iniquity, but they weary themselves to do iniquity, okay? It's, they, they're going to keep on doing it. Verse 6, your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Um, that's Okay, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will find them and try them, for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? 
Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably with his neighbor than with his mouth, but in his heart uh, he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? We've talked before that God is just. He will execute judgment. There will be no, no thing not justly dealt with in eternity in, in any way. So, but there, verse 6, your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refused to know me. It was, the people were dominated by lies. Not the truth, but deceit. And I think we kind of see that today, don't we? You watch the news or read the news, and it's like most of it is just deceit. And they do it purposely. But we have what? What do we have? We have the truth. And uh, maybe in a future study we'll get into that a little bit more deeply as to why we can be confident that we have the truth. But we do. Um, So let's close at that point in time. Let's close in prayer, keeping that in mind. Father in heaven, we do pray that thank you for your word that you've given us to teach us. And Father God, we pray that you would please help us to, to learn it and to be equipped by it and to have it ready for use. Um, we're not going to have everything ready all the time, but Lord, you can guide. We can have, know enough that you can guide us by your spirit to help share truth with people. And again, that we would not do it... Uh, according to the rudiments of the world, but in Christ, in his light, the only true light that came into the world. And we pray that you'd help us now as we head into the the worship service to come to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would honor you. And uh, we do again pray for your work in us and through us throughout this entire day as we have a big day ahead. Might it all be for your honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' most precious name and for his sake. Amen.